Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. It's October, which means the temperatures outside may be cooling, but the temperature of the upcoming general election in Arizona is only heating up. On November 8th, Arizonans will cast their votes to determine who will represent their interests at the state legislature and in other statewide offices, including that of the governor. In our daily lives, we're only exposed to a handful of these candidates, often through television ads and local media outlets. But that's just the tip of the iceberg of candidates running for office. Candidates who need your vote and need to be informed about the issues that matter to you. So, in this episode, the team at Vitalist has come together to highlight some of the issues that we believe are of critical importance for candidates to understand and consider as they move closer to obtaining public office. We're calling it Dear Candidates. We are thrilled to be joined today by my colleagues here at Vitalist Health Foundation to talk about the upcoming election, specifically talking about things that we think are going to be really important for candidates to know, candidates, many of whom will actually become state legislators or go into state office. So thanks so much for joining us, everyone. I'm going to go around and just do quick introductions, and then we'll get started with some, some talking points. First and foremost, you've heard her before on this podcast a few episodes ago. It's the president and CEO of Vitalist Health Foundation, Suzanne Feaster. Suzanne, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us, Marcus. And next, we have the director of community engagement here at Vitalist, Mr. David Martinez III. David, thanks for joining us again today. Glad to be back, Marcus. Also, Vitalist Director of Strategic Communications, Mr. Sergio Paris. Sergio, how are you? I'm great. It's great to be here. First time on the podcast. Excited. Oh, this is your first time. Welcome. It's an amazing (laughs) place to be. And last but not least, our Director of Healthy Communities, Gabriel Jaramillo. Gabe, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Also first for me. No, you've been on before talking about housing, haven't you? This is my first time. What a shame. Well, I'm glad we're remedying that right now. (laughs) All right. So today's goal is to actually speak to the 120 some odd candidates who are out there right now running for office in the state of Arizona. At Vitalist Health Foundation, we do many things. We are a grantor, so our our trade is that we offer grants to nonprofits. We focus on policy and advocacy, and we also like to inform and help connect partners from across the state. So why not have some awesome esteemed colleagues and experts here in Arizona and Vitalist Health Foundation speak to those candidates and just offer our insights on things that we think are important as we move into this next calendar year. First things first, Suzanne, we're a nonprofit. We are a foundation. I thought foundations can't talk about policy. I thought we can't talk about advocacy. Why are we doing this? Why are we here? This is a myth that we can't do it. This is something I've been passionate about and actually lectured on even 30 years ago when I was early in my career talking to nonprofits about why they should lobby and advocate and how they do it. And from my experience in all the boards, I've served on nonprofit boards, there always seems to be one attorney on the board who thinks you can't do this and says, absolutely not, nonprofits can't lobby. And that is completely false. There are some limits, but they are very broad limits. And I would say that For those attorneys, if you nonprofits have that attorney on the board that says you can't lobby in the podcast notes, you'll be able to see the link to boulderadvocacy.org. And that's where you send anybody on your board that has a question as to whether you can 
lobby. And I will tell you, you should lobby. You should be part of the democratic, small D democratic process of letting candidates, letting legislators, letting city council people know what is important, what your perspectives are, and how things and public policy should be changed to make it easier for you to serve your customers. I'm just going to kind of double click on the bolderadvocacy.org. It's a great resource. We used it many, many times to better understand where vitalists can go and cannot go type lines are, where our benchmarks are, or where our thresholds are. And so definitely to all those nonprofits out there, check out bolderadvocacy.org. And also it might be of interest to the candidates that nonprofits can advocate and can weigh in on policy. So I hope that that's one of the outcomes from this is that candidates are better aware of some of the nonprofits that are out there who are doing great work and can also really help to inform public policy. To the point about public policy, like I said, Vitalist is a grantor. We also lend our voice and our resources and our experience to move public policy. So Suzanne, I'll ask you, but anybody on this call, are, are there examples of policy wins or innovations that you can think of off the top of your head that candidates should really be aware of with some of the partners of Vitalist Health Foundation over the past handful of years? I'll lead off there for years. We did not have vision screening as a mandated requirement for elementary school children. For more than 20 years, hearing tests were required, but not vision screening. And how can kids, I had an eye problem and very bad vision when I was a youngster. And if I hadn't had a good optometrist and an ophthalmologist to take care of my vision problems, I would have been well behind in school. So we led the charge with a whole coalition of other nonprofits and providers to get a set and a consistent vision screening, both mandate and then consistent rules and regulations. Because schools were doing vision screening, but they weren't reporting, there was no tracking, it was inconsistent from school to school. So we had no public health information about the extent to which vision problems were impacting education. We also helped with what's called affectionately double up food bucks. It is a thing to help farmers in Arizona grow more produce by allowing people who are on food stamps called SNAP get twice as many, double the price if they bought healthy foods. So we were both helping the predominantly rural economy with agriculture and helping people get access to healthy foods. So those are two examples that have absolutely helped many markets and a whole ecosystem in Arizona build well-being within their communities. And I'm glad that you mentioned the vision screening piece. It, it wasn't just the legislation that needed to be passed, but also the follow-up and the rulemaking that we were at the table for to make sure that every T was crossed and every I was dotted even after the legislative session. So I think that's an important piece for candidates to recognize as well. Yeah. And I would say for nonprofits and newly elected officials, how government runs, that often gets a bad rap, but it really is important working with those state officials and policymakers within the state agencies to make sure good policy represents the community's interests. All right. So Suzanne did a great job talking about vision screening. She mentioned double up food bucks where you get twice the amount of produce for 
basically the same price that you would normally pay if you're on SNAP benefits. Gabe, David, Sergio, anything else come to mind about any of the grantees that we've helped to support or any of our individual policy work in, in recent history that we might want to lift up for candidates? I think for me, we're looking at, this is Gabriel, we're looking at housing policy and some of the, the partners that we support. The Housing Coalition has done some amazing work when it comes to addressing housing concerns on a statewide level. I'll touch on it a little bit more, but I, I think one of the biggest things to highlight is last year's win of creating a state-level tax credit program that would help bolster affordable housing and complement the federal tax credit program to bring additional funding to supportive housing and affordable housing projects. This hasn't become such a is and is becoming such a topic of discussion, you know, a center point of discussion for a lot of members. Even candidates need to be able to address housing on that broader level. To, so to see the state come in and want to participate at that level is, is really encouraging. Let's dive into that. Tell us more about that. So you mentioned that there's a tax credit program that was passed at the state legislature last year to help with housing. How does that work? Correct. The state level tax credit program models the federal tax credit program where the investments could be made from different corporations and companies to help create funding for uh, housing projects. So the nonprofit developers could apply for these tax credits and use them as an investment in the development of affordable housing on a competitive basis because there's a limited number of them. But there's a couple of opportunities that corporations, nonprofit developers can apply for the funding to help bring more units online, to help bring additional housing support on a variety of levels. So it's a really great program that was replicated here at the state level that really does address housing on a supplementary level. And Gabe, not to mention the great win with the investment in the Arizona Housing Trust Fund of $60 million. That was a great bipartisan effort that was really community-led and driven. And I know a long a long fight for a lot of stakeholders, but another great example of a, a victory at the legislature for housing. You're stealing my thunder here, David. I was going to save that one for later. <laughs> okay, cut that piece. Cut that piece. <laughs> Release the thunder right now. Let it well, go. You're right. No, the, that was one of the... Uh... You know, we talk about some of the, the legislative aspects and as far as housing goes, what I would hope legislators understand that housing is uh, on a spectrum and it affects every Arizona community from our rural communities to our most urban communities. And along that spectrum, you know, that we go from homelessness and transitional housing all the way to home ownership and then even market rate. So we're seeing stress on the entire spectrum. Yeah. David mentioned that the housing trust fund, a $60 million addition to the housing trust fund is a great boost to help fund additional programs, specifically addressing housing, whether it's providing additional vouchers or providing subsidy for some affordable housing projects. But we also need to look at other aspects and highlight some of the wins you know, affecting housing as we speak. So eviction dismissal, that was a big win this session to help seal eviction records for individuals that didn't go through the eviction process, but still had that on their record. You know, when somebody goes to apply for a voucher or applying for housing and they see an eviction on their record, it automatically paints a bad picture for somebody applying for that, whether they were evicted or not. So that's a great win for individuals trying to move past some of the history that they may have on their record and sealing those records. So that was a big legislative. On that point too, you know, one of the things that we always talk about at Vitalist is that these individual issues that at the state legislature and in public policy, it's it's kind of siloed, right? It's like, this is just housing and this is just food and this is just healthcare. But to your point, you know, th- this piece that was approved by the legislature last session, where if you previously had an eviction, but you never went through the entire process and basically it was dropped, that should be dismissed from your permanent records. That has implications for housing, 
I assume it also has implications for other sorts of financing or loans or workforce opportunities that you might see in your future. Is that accurate? That is absolutely. It does show up when companies run credit. So it does. It has broader implications on the future development, economic prosperities of individuals that have had some past difficulties or have gone through an eviction process. And like you said, most of which did not go through and get the eviction completed, but because they entered into that process, it showed up on their record. So that, that was a great victory to show the need for that type of change and how it affects Arizonans. I think that another one, you kind of mentioned some of the silos, and that's another thing we really hope that elected officials really tune into is how departments can work together. We know know that the Department of Education, the Department of Health are all working on housing. And how do we have the Department of Housing work with each of their major partners um, to address housing on that broader level, you know, if there's resources, you know, each each one of the departments is siloed and has their own resources and has their own initiatives when it comes to addressing different aspects. Housing and health are one of those. Really seeing how we could work together. And then I know Vitalist, you hear at Vitalist, we've made a big effort on breaking down some of those silos and getting those partners to work together to help integrate and address the social determinants of health on a broader scale within their within their departments. We've had some great conversations and have brought some great partners on board to to help address them, break down those silos. Let's talk about those silos. David, you know, you're director of community engagement. What that means practically, a large part of your job is helping to design and implement some of our larger grant making processes. How have we thought about this historical siloed approach? And how we recognize that that's a real thing, yet our grant making and the partners that we're helping to support need to kind of, yes, recognize that, but also evolve beyond this individual siloed approach. What what sort of things are you thinking about implementing here at Vitalist that candidates should be aware of and maybe even consider as they're introducing legislation or passing policies, aspects that they might want to take with them? Yeah, I think we'll just continue to implement the two-tiered grants program that we have outlined here at Vitalist that really is focused on that upstream approach to improving the health of people in our communities. And of course, we see health as much more than just health care. I mean, Suzanne and Gabe just gave uh, great examples of policy wins that our Vitalist and our partners have secured that include some things outside of the traditional sense of healthcare or medicine, like healthy local foods and, and housing, the entire spectrum of housing. We, we know that those upstream approaches to improving health often include policy systems or environmental change. Those are big, hairy, audacious goals, sometimes yeah. seemingly unattainable, especially with advocating at the legislature or working with state agencies or the governor's office. It's often not possible with just one organization, one elected official. It takes a village. It takes great collaborations. And that really is a key component to a lot of our programmatic work at Vitalist, but something that we really, really stress as part of our systems change grant and SPARK grants, which are specifically meant for collaborative working towards system change, breaking down those silos, looking at all of the intersections of the elements of a healthy community. David, you mentioned our intent to go upstream. It's not just medical care, getting individuals the medical care that they need, but it's also asking why do those individuals need medical care in the first place? Why do they have access or not have access to certain aspects of life that drive health ultimately? And Vitalist has recently really put a flag in the sand saying that civic health and civic engagement 
that's one of those upstream factors that can dictate whether or not a community is able to access health and well-being. As our local lead on civic health, can you talk a little bit about how are you thinking about civic health and its connection to community health? Yeah, and I get really excited when we talk about civic health. I I nerd out a lot on this, so forgive me if I go a bit astray. But first, for elected officials, thank you. You are working to improve the civic health of Arizona by putting your name forward to be considered by the electorate, by the voters here in Arizona. You are volunteering your time. You are becoming a public servant to make our state even greater, to work to improve the, the health as we frame it of our of our residents and our community. So thank you for being in the arena and working to strengthen civic health. The way that we frame civic health is often challenging because it encompasses a lot, but it really boils down to the simple fact that Arizonans are coming together every day to tackle our toughest challenges. That really is how I see civic health, is how communities organize and work together to improve the health of their communities or tackle their toughest community challenges. And in my role at Vitalist overseeing our our grants and capacity building program, as well as our priority around civic health, I get to talk with Arizonans throughout the state that don't look at red problems or blue problems. They're just looking at their neighborhood problems, community challenges, and coming together across political spectrums to tackle their toughest challenges. Everything from accessing care and services in rural parts of Arizona, where it is a bit more challenging to receive that care, or to tackle things like improving their streets and making it a bit more walkable, say. So that's really how I see civic health and how we frame it here at Vitalist. Okay, so we've touched on housing. We've touched on civic health and the importance around civic health and how it actually connects to to healthier communities. Access to food has been a longstanding priority of Vitalist as well. Suzanne, you had mentioned the double up food bucks. Sergio, you in a prior life, in a prior position, you actually worked for a local food bank. So when most people approach food, they think about it in terms of, well, everyone should go out and eat healthy and maybe exercise a little bit also. I assume your your experience at food banks has helped to kind of broaden that perspective. So when you think about healthy food environments and healthy food systems, Sergio, can you offer a little bit of, of your insights from your experience in the health system or in the food system, yeah. I should say? I think for the candidates, what they need to realize is that it's not just about accessing healthy food, creating healthy habits. The communities in which we live don't often yield those opportunities. It's easy to think about food deserts like downtown Phoenix, which up until a few years ago, didn't have an adequate grocery store. Or places like Levine, where if you're distanced out from a grocery store, it's going to take you a couple bus rides to go pick up food at a local Walmart or what have you. Or examples like if you go a little further north in Phoenix, go up to Cave Creek and you hit Dunlap, you're going to see a fries and then you're not going to see a grocery store for a long, long time. And so those communities don't have the access to fresh, healthy foods. That doesn't mean they don't have access to food. It means you're going to be able to access your local Circle K, where you're going to get Velveeta and shells, things that are terribly calorically dense, not healthy options, and it's going to create problems for people in our communities, things like diabetes. And so I think for candidates, what they need to know is is where their local food deserts are. It's not just taking a drive through your community and, and think, all right, you know, I just hit a grocery store. When am I going to see the next one? And if you don't see it for a while, 
and you're probably in a food desert. The people who are in that community aren't going to have access to that food. They're not going to have access to fresh foods. But I think in a broader sense, if you want that education on how food systems truly work, I would say all candidates should do what, what David used to do over at St. Mary's Food Bank, which was tour and give education lessons on how food systems work. When he was at St. Mary's Food Bank, he would take in legislators and and show them, look, this is how a food bank works, right? You think, all right, there's this hub in Phoenix where there's a food bank, but there's, you know, another 350 local food pantries with whom that food bank might work. And that's how food systems really work. At the end of the day, we don't have a food problem in this country. We have a distribution problem. It's a logistics issue. There's so much food that's coming into Arizona via Nogales, right? There's 6 billion pounds of food that we're getting through the port of Nogales. There's so much food. Wow. Uh, and at the end of the day, we just need resources to get food in the hands of people who need it. And I think at the end of the day, that's something that we just don't realize is the issue, right? You think, well, it's it's just easy. Just go to your grocery store. You know, with inflation and all of the issues that we're facing now, it's not as easy. I mean, I see it when I, I was just at Costco last week and I was talking to Gabe about it the other day. A block of cheese that used to cost me five bucks is now $10. And I think for families who you know, are hitting wages that, that are stagnant. These things are hard. So we need to work together with all the partners to ensure that the food that we are providing people is not only accessible, and if it's not accessible in their communities, how can we get it into their communities via food trucks, via food distributions, whatever have you, so that they can access the food and feed their families. Food is going to impact every aspect of your life. If you have kids at home who are going to school on empty stomachs, if you're going home on a Friday night and your kids, you know, that's where they're getting their last meal and they're not eating until Monday morning, there's an issue there. And that's something that's impacting families across Arizona. Well said. It's yet another example of how food is not just food. It is so much more. It's economic. It's anytime families get together for holidays, it's centered around food. So there's an aspect of of community and social cohesion that's around food as well. Another aspect that Vitalist doesn't always dive deep into, but is more than just the issue that people often see on the surface is, is education. And Vitalist has kind of carved out an interesting niche in education in terms of recognizing the connection of, of education to health and especially with mental well-being. And Suzanne, I know you've kind of helped to head up a lot of this work in terms of what's known as trauma-sensitive or trauma-informed schools. Can you talk a little bit about the history with Vitalist and education and kind of getting to this place where we're talking about trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive environments? Yeah, very briefly, this all started with a systems change grant that we approved in South Phoenix with a group called South Mountain Works, the coalition. And it was to help create a trauma-sensitive community in the Roosevelt School District, not only for the teachers, but teachers, staff, children, and parents. So a full community. And they have, with this implementation, they've done it in Roosevelt School District in one or two schools, elementary schools. This was pre-pandemic. They've seen grade increases. So people, the school has gone from a C-rated school to a B-rated school. And we said, okay, Roosevelt can't be the only place where this is going on. And so that led to an inventory and a paper that we produced that's on the Vitalist website talking about where are there, where are the other activities. And we found that there was over 90 schools 
in Arizona that had trauma-informed something, social-emotional learning, but they weren't working together. They were siloed. They weren't leveraging best practices from each other. So we have helped to do that and, again, help the coalition through the ACEs Coalition Adverse Childhood Experience Consortium. And because of the pandemic, there was money in the Arizona Department of Health Services budget, in the access budget, and in the Arizona Department of Education budget, all for schools, all for implementing social-emotional learning. These three agencies were not regularly talking to each other and not looking about how they can braid funding. So we have helped to pull them together to talk more deeply about braiding funding. I said the worst possible thing would be three state agencies going to talk to the same school about different programs. Hmm. That is not happening because we intervened and said, please keep working on this. And we were involved in all three state agencies. So we were able to influence that collaboration. This is at least probably six, nine months ago. There was also a lot of talk about the need for, and I'm going to try to get this term right, an interagency council on housing to the same point that it's not just a single agency's responsibility to make sure that there's a decent education system, that the roots of a good education system are connected to many other aspects. Gabe, what's the right term on that? Interagency council on housing was something that the state had several years back and was kind of disbanded, but to the current director of housing, Thompson Plots Credit, he's been really working hard to make some of these connections with other departments. And we've been working alongside him to get the Department of Education and the Department of Health all in, in conversation in unison to try to address some of these issues. I think one of our current projects aligns itself well with that when we're talking about education and having uh, local schools continue to be the hub for the community. And, and we're trying to figure out how we can use school land to really create a hub that incorporates several of the social determinants of health. So if we can help create housing, healthcare centers, daycare centers, workforce development on on school property to kind of center and and anchor that community, that's something that we're looking into right now and working with several partners to really try to bring some of these groups together to address a variety of issues on a central location for, for each community. And that's something that we could replicate statewide. David and Sergio, both of you mentioned something that seems kind of like a common thread. David, you mentioned how much you enjoy being able to be out in community, hearing from local organizations, hearing from residents about the issues and the challenges that they're facing that aren't red or blue or left or right or whatever. It's just issues that are really salient to their neighborhoods. And Sergio, you mentioned the importance of Anybody, whether it's folks on the vitalist team, elected officials, being out and being able to see things like a food bank or the resources that are ultimately providing or not as effectively providing resources to community. So I'm I'm curious if, if you had 120 some odd candidates right in front of you and you wanted to offer them any sorts of insights or words of advice on how to stay connected to community and really understand what's actually going on juxtaposed to what's all the noise that we hear in the news or down at the state capitol, what advice would you provide to them? I think the point that the examples of the the success of our grant partners that Suzanne mentioned and Gabriel mentioned as well, that addressed 
educational issues with trauma-sensitive or trauma-informed school communities, and then certainly the interagency collaboration with housing show that there's a role for government and there's a role for the nonprofit sector, which includes the philanthropic sector. So elected officials should definitely get to know the subject matter experts in their community that are tackling some of the toughest challenges that they'll face at the state capitol or in their role with state agencies. So if you have a question about food insecurity in your community, sure, there are very qualified, great staffers that work at the capitol and in our state agencies, but pick up the phone knock on the door of your local nonprofit of the food bank down the street. And elected officials are, are civic and community leaders anyway. So I'm, I'm certain they serve in a lot of different capacities in, in your own neighborhoods. But there's not one legislative district, there's not one community, one neighborhood in Arizona that isn't being served by the nonprofit sector, which is an important aspect that I really want to hit too. The nonprofit sector in Arizona is tremendous. It is huge. There are more than 20,000 registered nonprofits throughout the state of Arizona that are all working in different subsectors of the larger nonprofit sector on issues that matter to Arizonans. And as a collective, we have a tremendous economic impact, but even more importantly, we have a tremendous social impact. And this goes back to the point of the role of government and the role of the nonprofit sector. Working together, just like is being done in South Phoenix with trauma-sensitive schools, just as it's being done with housing on school properties, including in rural communities throughout Arizona, where these issues are even more exacerbated. Government is coming together with the nonprofit sector, with philanthropy, to tackle the toughest challenges. They are very hard, but they are being done collectively. So a message for elected officials is get to know your local nonprofits, get to know the Alliance of Arizona Nonprofits and the Arizona Grantmakers Forum, which represent the nonprofit and philanthropic sector in Arizona. So we can collaborate throughout the state of Arizona. We're not just tackling challenges here in Phoenix or Maricopa County or Tucson or Flagstaff, all corners of the state of Arizona. I think echoing on what David said, and this is going to contradict what I do here at the foundation. But get off Twitter, get off Facebook, get off Instagram, and get into your communities. It's easy to sit there and live in a world of hashtags, live in a world of polarization in which we all live. But get into your community. Go talk to the people. Go knock on doors. Pretend it's 1995 and you're campaigning that way. Knock on doors. Meet your constituents. Meet the people in your community who are leading the charge on on issues. And find out what's, what's actually happening. Like David said, don't rely on those staffers. Don't rely solely on on the people who are working for you. Get out there and and meet everybody who you need to work for, because at the end of the day, you are working for that community. And that's where you'll find the answers, right? It's, It's easy for us in any position to sit there and think we know better. But that's one of the things that we do at Vitalist is we listen to the communities, we listen to the nonprofits, and we find out from them where we might have it wrong or where we might need to check ourselves and and figure out there's better solutions. Well said. Get off Twitter, stay away from those hashtags, get into your community. That that point is really, really important. And it kind of connects Marcus to our work in in civic health. The concept of civic health is people coming together to improve the health of their residents and communities is all about connecting as people. The concept of social cohesion, belonging, uh, collaboration may seem really fluffy, frou-frou, rose-tinted glasses, but they matter. 
And the data is increasingly showing that the more connected communities are, the healthier that they are. And that's another reason why Vitalis has identified civic health as a priority, because there are growing bodies of evidence that shows that the stronger civic health there is in communities in a state, the healthier those communities and the state is. And if I'm not mistaken, we'll have a publication out soon about that, correct, David? We are. Thanks for that tea up, Marcus. I really appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah. We're we're working with a national partner called Healthy Democracy, Healthy People that are rooted in evidence-based public health practices to show that there is indeed a connection between a community's civic participation, civic engagement, and health outcomes, both as a means and an end. What does that mean? The data shows that those communities that have higher voter registration, those communities that have higher voter participation, more residents are voting, those communities are healthier by general indicators around public health, so our health outcomes, like lower diabetes rates, lower heart disease rates, lower mortality rates. So the proof is in the pudding when it comes to voting and health outcomes, both as an end, but also the means. So the means in which people are engaging, and this is another reason why civic health is so important to Vitalist, is that residents have a role to play in our government. And government should be receptive to hearing those authentic voices in systems and remove as many barriers as possible to accessing voting ballots, to registering to vote, and to letting Arizonans' voices be heard. Because we know that the more Arizonans that are involved in policymaking, the better health policies are, are made. So that's why Vitalist is, as you said earlier, putting a stick in the sand, a flag in the sand, and making a strong stance on the importance of civic health, especially in an election year, but even outside of the election year. Uh, come, come the day after election, there will be uh, winners and there will be losers. But the work of the state, the work of government, the work of nonprofits continue. And it's up to us to continue to build those connections in our communities because it shows that we will have an opportunity to create healthier communities and a healthier Arizona. It's a good reminder that the work of Arizona does not begin in January of this next calendar year, once new officials take office, that this work, like you said, continues. It has been happening. So I want to shift to a little game that we're calling Connect Four. We have four panelists on the podcast today. Each of you think of one organization that you think could be really beneficial and really insightful for candidates and future lawmakers. Who would you recommend those candidates get connected to? I'll start. It's the Alliance for Arizona Nonprofits, which has recently merged with the Arizona Grantmakers Forum. And those two groups literally represent hundreds, if not over a thousand organizations that are serving our legislators' constituents. So you can get two groups in one and really get some very vital information. I'll follow that up with the Arizona Housing Coalition. And again, kind of a two for one aspect. It's not just the coalition, but the members and the projects that they're involved in. So all the members that participate in the Housing Coalition are nonprofits, agencies, stakeholders in housing from the entire spectrum. 
But Joan also represents the affordable housing community when talking to a bipartisan committee about the future of housing in Arizona. It's an extremely important piece of information to understand on housing along the entire spectrum with a variety of stakeholders, with a variety of interests. That committee that you mentioned was a legislative committee that was passed and created by the legislature last session, right? Correct. That was a bipartisan bill that was presented. It did not pass in its original form, but created this committee to really analyze the housing situation with the state of Arizona to see how we could best approach it for the next legislative session. I'm going to cheat because I can't choose a favorite partner of ours. You're going to make me choose. A, it's like a favorite kid. I didn't. No, no, no. I didn't say favorite. I didn't say favorite. <laughs> but I, I feel like by spotlighting some of the great work our partners is doing just proves a lot of the points that we're making. I know the organizations that Suzanne and Gabe mentioned are statewide, but I'm going to especially focus on some of our rural partners or community-centric partners, one representing Northern Arizona. So for all those elected officials in Arizona's beautiful high country, definitely engage with the Coconino Coalition for Children and Youth. They're based in Flagstaff and, as their name says, works primarily in in Coconino County. But we know that oftentimes rural communities are the hubs of even more rural areas of our state. And they have done a great job with engaging, especially tribal communities and every city and town along the I-40 corridor in northern Arizona to recognize that there is intergenerational solutions to the intergenerational trauma that a lot of those communities have have faced. I love their self-healing communities model, and I'm so proud that Vitalist is able to partner with them up in Northern Arizona. And then the other partner is from Southern Arizona, got to represent Southern Arizona, being from Marana. This is a partnership that is led by Southwest Folklife Alliance, primarily in South Tucson along La Doce or 12th Avenue. A great model of how an institution like Southwest Folklife Alliance, which is based out of the University of Arizona, Bear Down, are bringing together communities, actually talking with community members to identify what they want to see as the area of South Tucson and 12th Avenue is growing tremendously, working with the city of Tucson developers, the regional transportation authority there to make sure that the community voices are at the table and heard in the redesign and the growth of that tremendous area, beautiful cultural area, delicious food as well in South Tucson. So those are two great partners that I'll highlight. David, you've turned this into a game of Connect Six, unless Sergio decides to go even farther. (laughs) I was thinking about doing two, but I'll keep it to one. So if they're not already connected to them, they definitely need to get connected to the Arizona Food Systems Network, which is actually led by our partner, Pinnacle Prevention. So they just released, gosh, I want to say four or five months ago, the Arizona Statewide Food Action Plan, which has four priorities. That's at azfsn.org. You can get a snapshot, an eight-pager. It's easily digestible. So get connected to them and figure out all of the ways in which we can all work together to improve Arizona's food systems. All right, gang. Final question. What's the one thing that you want candidates and future lawmakers to keep top of mind as they move into public office. 
Step out of your silos. Don't think that housing is separated from food and separated from transportation and separated from healthcare. They're all interconnected. So ask state agencies, how are you partnering with your fellow departments? Break out of the ARS binder <laughs> to look at just, oh, I can only talk about the education bills. Look at how they intersect and how they collaborate and affect each other. I have to second that. The idea of the economic prosperity of Arizona to every Arizonan is affected by so many, such a variety of topics that include housing, that include food security, that include education. And that interconnectedness is going to be important to, to bridge those gaps moving forward. We see the, the impact that the markets have, whether it's a housing market, the food market, whatever it may be, that it has on Arizona as a whole. We talk about Arizona being one of the fastest growing states is flocking here from all over the place uh, and it affects every aspect of our life. So being able to break down those silos and address things on a multifaceted aspect is going to be crucial for the future, not only of our most in need, but everybody that we want to attract with the highest talents as well. And my answer will kind of write off of a comment that Gabe just mentioned with folks flocking to Arizona. One of our civic health partners is working to improve the civic health progress meters of Arizona. That's the Arizona Civic Life Partnership that's being led by the Center for the Future of Arizona and the Arizona Center for Civic Leadership. The progress meters has data that show that just 12% of Arizonans know their neighbors. That just surprises me tremendously. So my message to elected officials will be obviously to get to know your, your neighbors, to get to know your neighborhoods and your communities, talk with those nonprofits in, in your districts as subject matter experts, but also as you're down at the Capitol or working in, in decision-making rooms, talk to the neighbors sitting to the desk next to you, even if they are from a different party or may have a different political philosophy as you, because they too have neighbors nonprofits in their communities that are addressing similar issues, just like the neighbors and communities in your own district. Pivoting off what David said, also, if you one more resource for all of these potential legislators, go check out all of the progress meters that the Center for the Future of Arizona have. They're at ArizonaFuture.org. So there's a variety of issues impacting Arizona. Go learn about all of them. And I would say magic wand. Don't forget that you serve everybody in your community, not just your voters. Sergio, I'm going to stick with you. We've talked about a lot of things. Vitalist has this wheel, this el these elements of a healthy community, 12 different elements that are anchored by health equity and resiliency. We've talked about housing. We've talked about civic health. We've talked about trauma-informed schools. We've talked about housing and schools. We've talked about food systems. We've touched on access to care. How can candidates stay informed with all these amazing things that Vitalist is doing and all these amazing things that Vitalist partners are doing? Well, you can listen to this podcast and share it. If you're listening to it on your favorite streaming platform, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or what have you, make sure to rate it for us and share the podcast with everyone. Register and sign up for our newsletter. The Vitalist Spark News goes out at the end of every month. It's chock full with tidbits of information and follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Follow us on social media, sign up for our newsletter and follow the podcast and share it with all your friends and family. And if you have any suggestions on topics that might be of benefit, shoot us an email. You can find all of our information 
on the about us on the vitalist health.org site. Well done. Suzanne, president and CEO, I want to give you the opportunity for the last word. You have an audience of candidates who are listening on this, an audience of nonprofits and other stakeholders. What do you want to leave the audience with? Just that there are a lot of resources at your disposal and leverage those, use those to your benefit to better understand. I know there are days when you're going to have 15 minute meetings with people. And so having a chance to get different perspectives is challenging. But as Sergio said, you represent all interests and it's important to hear from them. So allow for that interdisciplinary approach when you look at resolving challenges. Sergio Perez, David Martinez, Gabriel Jaramillo, and Suzanne Feaster, thank you all for joining the Vitalist Spark podcast. That's all the time we have for today. To the candidates listening in, please do not hesitate to reach out to our team at Vitalist to learn more about the issues and the resources discussed in today's episode. We don't have all the answers, but we're happy to inform and connect you to the best of our ability. And to all of our listeners, remember to make your voice heard in the upcoming election on November 8th and vote. Vote like the health of Arizona depends on it because, well, it does. As always, many thanks to the team at Gordon C. James Public Relations and Rob Trigg at Star Worldwide Networks for production and sound design. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.